Just a minute to introduce Ken. Um, a lot of us know Ken, as Ken's spoken here a number of times. You may not know Ken, or you may be remembering. If you're like me, it's like, oh, now what was that? Where did that guy come from? Uh, Carrie and I met Ken and Beth almost exactly 42 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, I think, September of 1979. We were raising funds to go as missionaries to Brazil, and we, we spoke at the Little House Church. They supported us for a number of years. And it has been a rich blessing to know Ken and Beth over the years. I've known Keith, Ken to be a man of, of character, a godly character, a humble man, a good father, a good husband, and a good shepherd to the church that he has served now for many years. Um, Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And Ken has been that. He has loved us through our mostly good times as a church, but he's been a brother in adversity and encouraged us and given us wisdom. He's poured himself into Jace and to me, and now Jacob benefits from that as well. He's our regional leader in Sovereign Grace churches, gives us wisdom all the time. Just last night, he was giving me wisdom and helping me think through things. He also serves us, our family of churches, the Sovereign Grace churches, on our executive board, which provides oversight and he is the chair of that board and has helped our ministry walk through a lot of things over the years. So he is a man who has been a blessing to us, helped us in this place, and we're eager to hear God's word from him today. So please welcome Ken as he comes. <clears throat> Good morning. It's uh, great to be here. Love this church. Uh, so many wonderful saints here. Uh, you can turn to Matthew 6, by the way. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 24. So many wonderful folks in this church. And I was mentioning to Jace uh, at the break, uh, there's just a wonderful sense of life here that uh, I don't know if you are aware of or if you can appreciate, but not every church has that sense of life, and you do by the grace of God. Uh, but not only by the grace of God, that's the fruit of uh, effective pastors. And so uh, Jason, and Bert, and Jacob uh, do a wonderful job in leading you. I don't know that because I'm here. I know that because of the fruit I see in your lives and the evidence of that grace. So wonderful to be with you you. Let's dive into God's Word. I'm going to pray briefly, and we'll get to work. Lord Jesus is enough for us, and we're grateful for your work in our lives. We look to you because you're everything to us. And I pray now as we consider a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the very words of Jesus, I pray that you would come and meet with us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been privileged in life to have one daughter, uh, three sons, but one daughter. And this daughter, named Sarah, was a pretty good athlete back in the day. Uh, decades later, because my kids are older now, uh, we continue to meet kids who were scarred for life by her appearance at the annual homeschool track and field day where she dominated them and they had no chance. Uh, Sarah in junior high was unbeatable 
in track and field. Uh, one of Sarah's teammates on that team, so between the two of them, uh, one of her teammates went on to win silver in the 2008 Olympics in the heptathlon. That's a seven sport event. So th these, were two, these were two amazing athletes. Uh, some of you who might be more judgmental think, oh, I'm going to take credit for the athleticism. It's tempting, but the athlete in the family is mom, actually, Beth, who's here with us. Uh, Beth ran track in high school, undefeated in the county league her senior year. Um, uh, a wonderful sprinter, and then played field hockey four years in high school, later four years at Messiah College. And so Beth was uh, in her high school class, the outstanding athlete in her class, and I never approached anything like those levels of award. So all credit to Beth for that. Um, the thing is, Sarah played other sports, not, not just track. And for Sarah, and, and this was not at my encouragement, uh, Sarah tended to be uh, wired in a way where she was like, what season is it? Okay, I'll play that. So, oh, it's tennis season. I'll pick up my racket and start hitting the tennis ball. And she would smack it hard and not, not as successfully as she could have. Uh, she had a brother that was very good, but she just smacked it hard, didn't care. And then, oh, it's soccer season. I'll pick up a soccer ball. And, and now we'll play soccer a little. And uh, that was how she went, went through uh, life in, in school. Uh, but she also played basketball. And it's basketball that comes to mind. Along with her athletic teammate, uh, they would get rebounds, run down the court, run past everybody, um, and then go to make a layup and clang it off the backboard. Like it wouldn't even hit the rim. It would just ricochet off. And, and it was so frustrating because there's a proper way to make a layup. There's a right way to do it. And it takes coaching. If, if you're not doing it right in a sport, you need coaching. There didn't appear to be coaching. And this happened again and again. Jesus in this text is speaking to us about executing the layup properly, but he's not talking about basketball. He's talking about our money. There's a right way to handle our money. There is a way to lay our money up in eternity. In our context, Jesus is teaching us about two challenges we face in the Christian life. In verses 1 through 18 of Matthew 6, he's teaching us about hypocrisy. And so he starts off with three different categories, giving, praying, fasting, saying there's a way not to do it, and then there's a right way to do it, which is what good coaches would do. So um, hypocr hypocrisy is a danger for all of us. Uh, I recall one instance. So what Jesus is saying is don't do it because of what other people think. I recall one pastor's conference I was at where I noticed they were taking pictures and the camera was over here and I was standing here singing and I was singing wholeheartedly and I was singing praises to the Lord. I noticed the camera and I thought, it's, it's a bad look if a pastor, pastors are godly, if I'm just standing here like this, I better do this for the camera. And I thought, what a hypocrite I am. Like, like I'm doing it, I mean, I mean, I do raise my hands. It, it's fine, but like, just because the camera's there, I hate that, um, that, that I reacted that way. But Jesus is saying, be careful. We have this bent within us to do things in certain ways to be seen. In 
the, our text, uh, verses 19 through 24, Jesus is going to talk about the challenge of how we relate to the world. We're supposed to live in the world, but not be of the world, is what he tells us in the Gospel of John. So as we live life in this world, Jesus in this text, verses 19 through 24, tells us three dangers we face. Danger one is laying up treasures in the wrong place. Danger two is seeing incorrectly. And danger three is serving the wrong master. So the first danger is laying up treasures in the wrong place. Jesus begins by telling us what we shouldn't do with our treasures. What, what are our treasures? Well, it is our wealth or our possessions. Jesus says this, verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like any good teacher, any good instructor, any good coach or parent, Jesus gives reasons for his teaching. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Well, why, why is that, Jesus? Well, Jesus says the problem is possessions don't stay in pristine possession. They don't stay in, in a good condition when we have them in our hands. Moth, speaking of clothing, rust, speaking of metal, take over, and so they don't stay in good condition. Uh, if you've ever noticed uh, a house that's vacant, a house that's vacant, like the roof starts to sag in and like the front porch collapses and just things just fall apart. That's what happens to things in this world. They don't stay pristine. If we could keep them pristine, someone wants to steal them. Someone wants to take it from us. So uh, if we have fine art, for instance, or antique cars, we lock them up. We take great care because we know someone might take them from us and we don't want, we don't want someone to take them. There are a number of great movies about, about theft, uh, which we don't encourage. We don't encourage stealing. But the point is, there's possessions that fall apart and then if they're in good shape, people want to take them is what Jesus is trying to say. So what is Jesus teaching regarding possessions? Uh, we don't want to do violence to Scripture by having uh, one Scripture contradict another Scripture. The Word of God is one, God is one, and He speaks to us in a consistent way. He's not confusing. He's not the author of confusion. Jesus is not teaching against personal ownership uh, of possessions. The Bible everywhere assumes personal ownership as a way of life. So one of the Ten Commandments, number eight, says, you shall not steal. If there's not personal ownership, you obviously can't steal. Um, further, without personal ownership, there's nothing to give. Uh, so we're only able to not steal, and we're only able to give because there is such a thing as personal ownership. The Bible never says we own equal parts. Memo to everyone, life's not fair. We don't all get the same amount. We don't all have the same amount of possessions uh, to manage or to steward. It just does not 
not work that way. Jesus is also not teaching that planning or saving or life insurance, for instance, are wrong. The Bible praises thinking ahead, saving and planning, and having provision for our family. For instance, in Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11, it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The point isn't to be poor. The point isn't to be in poverty. Uh, there was one book that became rather famous, uh, written by a famous pastor who, who encouraged a radical approach to Christianity, and we're all for radical, but some individuals heard the teaching and actually resigned their jobs thinking that making less money, and that became no money, was somehow more honorable. That's not the point. That's not what we're trying to encourage. Jesus is also not teaching possessions and wealth are evil. It's the love of money that's evil, not money itself. So scripture encourages us to be content whether we are poor or whether we are abounding. Philippians 4, 12 and 13, Paul writes, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, uh, which is a misquoted verse. Uh, in context, Paul is just simply saying, I can do all things, meaning I can abound and I can be content and all things in between because Jesus is enough for me. Because I have him, I will be content. It doesn't mean the aim is to not abound. That's not the point. And it doesn't mean we work like crazy to make sure we abound. He's just saying, hey, in life, seasons of both come our way. So that's what Jesus is not teaching. What he is teaching is this. The issue is self. I want you to see that. Do not lay up treasures for yourself. That's what Jesus is speaking against. It's not a word against saving. It's not a word against money. But it is speaking about hoarding and coveting. When Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth, each one of us must face what amount of money is that? How much is enough? Uh, financial planners will tell you you probably need more for retirement than you have. You need more to raise kids than you have. There's, there's always, you need more, and of course there is that possibility. But we are not to hoard, and we're not to covet. The one who hoards lacks faith. Uh, they do not trust God, so they, they better make sure they've got it under control because God might not come through. The one who covets lacks contentment in desire more. But the one who grasps the gospel with the call to follow Jesus that comes with the gospel gives because of how much has been received of God's grace and mercy. When God changes our heart, we who once were selfish, we who once were hating one another, find this desire to become generous and to give. So Jesus says, you can send your treasure on ahead where it's incorruptible. Well, what's our treasure again? What, what are we sending ahead? Well, 
we think about and we give ourselves to those activities in this life that will matter in eternity. Uh, only what's done for Christ will last. So what things matter in eternity? Well, we would suggest growth in godly character matters. We want to put sin to death. We want to put on godliness. This is why we fellowship with one another in small groups. A Living Hope, we call them community groups. Different churches use different names. But the point of small groups is we connect with one another relationally so we receive and all the more important so we give because we're investing in one another and each part in the body must do its work as we relate. So we grow in godly character. We increase in faith, hope, and love. 1 Peter 1 says, uh, 2 Peter 1 says, we're blind if we aren't growing in godliness. So it's of the utmost importance that we continue to grow in godliness and we share the gospel. We know that matters in eternity, right? We share the gospel with those who have not yet heard the good news and we give our money strategically. Uh, back at Living Hope, uh, for us, that meant pursuing a church facility. In 2003, uh, the lead pastor, me, who was opposed to buildings, uh, determined that it would be wise for us to have a ministry tool that is a building. And so in 2003, uh, we announced to the church, we're going to begin raising money to take steps toward being able to purchase land and then be able to build a facility. In laying out a plan and in leading the church in to it. I said this is a ministry tool we are considering. So we're going to raise money for land. I think my plan was 313. Three years money for land, one year off, three years money for a building and build what we can afford. So that would have been 2010. What happened to us was we hit some utility problems and we finally did buy land in 2007, slower than I thought. And uh, we kept raising money and uh, it stretched onward and we did not build until 2016 which was 13 years later we occupied in 2017 14 years later we took a couple years off in there but Living Hope was interested in investing in a facility not because it'd be more convenient we warned the church for Living Hope having a building means a lot more work there is a lot more serving needed if we're to have this we did it because we believed it mattered in eternity. We believed that we were called to be a presence in the community, to be salt and light, to be a city set on a hill. And the call on us was to pursue this facility. So because it was a ministry tool, we said the Living Hope, we don't want our general fund to be affected. We don't want ministries to stop and change because of bricks and carpet. So we're going to continue to raise funds every year for this building. So it's now 2021, and that means we've been raising money because even in the years we took off, folks were like, ah, we'll just keep on giving. So it's been like 18 years where folks are still faithfully giving money toward our facility. It's become a bit of a way of life, and I respect the folks at Living Hope tremendously for this because they aren't just invested in the here and now. They are thinking ahead and looking ahead and want to make 
make a difference in eternity. So we invest our money strategically. It is an unavoidable, eternal statement of fact. We want to invest in what God is doing, but Jesus says, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We all, with our resources, have a place where our treasure is located. The question is, where is it? So we need clear sight to see the things that God values for eternity. That's the question. That's the issue. What are we sending ahead? What do we lay up? What matters in eternity? This brings us to the second danger, seeing incorrectly. Verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye is a metaphor for the heart. So Jesus is speaking about the health and condition of our heart. It's the wellspring of life. If your heart is healthy, your entire life is healthy. If your heart's bad, then how great is the darkness? If we have poor spiritual vision, we will make poor spiritual choices. We must see correctly to live correctly. How can this be? How can it be that Jesus talks to his disciples about darkness, about this great darkness? Well, simply put, it's possible to be a Christian. It's possible to be born again, but make poor choices in life. It's possible to not steward our resources wisely in light of eternity. Jesus is speaking to us here about laying up treasures in heaven. He's talking about eternity. So we don't want to place the wrong value on things now. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't waste your life. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 and following. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no other foundation. We build on Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, will disclose it because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Jesus is our foundation. We boast only in the cross and the finished work of Christ and his resurrection seals and demonstrates the effectiveness of the cross. This is the foundation for everything that we do in life. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It was his initiative, not ours. Praise God, he worked in our life. His love captures us and we follow Jesus. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we're told to take up our cross daily and die. We die to self. And the danger here is laying up treasures for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, no, die to self, surrender control, surrender sin, and obtain eternal life as we follow Jesus. This world, which is a good gift, this world is a beautiful place. It is amazing. This world's not our home. 
What thinking is it that causes us to live and act as if this world is our home? After all, we come into the world with nothing and we leave with nothing. And we know that, right? Come with nothing, leave with nothing. But in between, we're called to steward and manage the things that God has put into our hands. So what's the roadblock? Randy Alcorn weighs in in the treasure principle. He says there are many roadblocks to giving, unbelief, insecurity, pride, idolatry, desire for power and control. The raging current of our culture and often our churches makes it hard to swim upstream. It's considered normal in quotes, to keep far more than we give. But I'm convinced the greatest deterrent to giving is this, the illusion that earth is our home. I love to go away on trips. I love being out here with you all. I love to go home. Love to arrive home. It just feels so comfortable and so normal. Feels like I belong there. But that is not my home. It's my home here on earth. It's not home. My home is in a city built by God, and that's what we look for, and that is what we live for. This world is not my home. We're just passing through. When it comes to our treasure, then, Jesus invites us out into the deep waters. He invites us to give up control. He invites us to take some risk as we consider how we handle our finances. Because if your view is that you should hold on to it all, and the more you hold on to it, the more you have, you will find your life spiritually to be stifled and restricted. So we give up control. And C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Weight of Glory. He said, this is my endlessly recurrent temptation to go down to that sea. I think St. John of the Cross called God a sea. And there neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash. Careful not to get out of my depth and holding on to the lifeline which connects me with my things temporal. What he's saying is we tend to hold on to those things that are temporal. We tend to worry and obsess. We tend to be anxious, which in your next sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will speak to anxiety. We tend to think our Father who knows everything we need before we ask, we tend to think he might not be faithful. We better take care of it. It's, it's on us. And so we tend to hold on things Jesus saying, get out of the boat. The way to live and to prosper is to be generous with money and possessions. So we think clearly, we guard our heart, and we consider who or what it is that is our actual functional master. Jesus tells us we have a choice, which brings us to point three, the third danger, serving the wrong master. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Unavoidable, eternal statement of fact. We cannot serve two masters, and this is slave language because we're slaves of Christ. Once we were going our own way, doing our own thing, but the grace of God broke into our hearts 
and we are changed as a result. My current favorite definition of grace comes from John Stott, who says grace is love, and so grace is Jesus Christ, right? It's a person. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. God so loved the world that he sent his son. He cared for his people. He stoops, he condescends, leaving aside eternal riches, Jesus does. He stoops and he rescues us. He comes into this world and dies a death for us to save his people from their sins. And when we become aware of our sin, we've broken his holy law, and become aware of the love of Christ, we repent, we trust him, and we follow Jesus. Jesus is not only a savior. Jesus, Paul says repeatedly, is Savior and Lord. When I was 13, I went forward in response to a message. The preacher was an evangelist preaching from Matthew 24 and 25 on hell. The wailing and gnashing of teeth, I thought, sounds awful. don't think I want that. Uh, I'll take the other door. The other door was Jesus. And so I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me for my sins which many of us have done. And then for like the next 10 years, I'd have been considered a, a good kid. I wasn't a troublemaker. Um, never ended up on the wrong side of the law, so to speak. But, but when I'm 23, I hear a sermon that rocked me. I was informed from the Word of God that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And as Lord, He's in control of my life. I belong completed to Him. And when the preacher asked, who's Lord of your life? There was no question who was on the throne of my heart, my life. It was me. It was, knew it. Didn't have to think, didn't have to pause and reflect for two seconds. I, I knew the answer. It was me. Well, Jesus is Savior and Lord. He's not divisible. And so when it comes to following him in this text, we got a choice of God or money. That's a choice that is confronting us. When money's our master, it has our worship, our thoughts, our affection. We're consumed by money. We think nonstop about money. We want more money. We covet ever and ever more money. And the tragedy is we think this will be happiness. We think that our happiness will somehow be located in our money or our possessions. It's absolute craziness because it's proven to be false again and again and again, but it hooks our hearts. And we certainly won't be generous givers. Uh, those who are seeking to send treasure ahead do so by giving. And in giving, uh, for the Christian, we encourage uh, believers to tithe as a beginning point. Tithe is giving 10% to recognize God's ownership. It's found in the Bible. It's not strong in the New Testament. Uh, you won't find verses uh, commanding a tithe. In fact, money is just be generous and give. But the point of generosity is to overflow with giving. And it means more than the evangelical average in the U.S., which is like 2%. Like 2% is not like, whoa, look at that. That generosity, I'm moved to tears. 2% is not anywhere near generous, sacrificial giving. So we encourage starting with the tithe just as a starting point. I'd like to tell you my story with tithing, but I don't have time. But uh, I'll give credit to Beth for it is all you need to know for now. Um, we give to the poor. Uh, widows and orphans, uh, the New Testament says, supporting them is true religion. So we, we give to the poor because... 
our hearts been captured. We give offerings to eternal causes when led by the Spirit, which hopefully is often. There's this desire within us to give, and we want to invest. Uh, we have a heart to give more than we can actually give. We wish we could give more because, because we so are grateful for the grace that's come into our life. The gospel works this in our hearts. And we don't find security, pleasure, power, or independence in wealth. We do not live for money. People in the Bible who did live for money were the Pharisees. Material wealth was very important to them. They viewed it as a sign of God's blessing on their lives. They loved money and wealth. Wealth was their functional God. But before we condemn them, we'd be wise to check our own heart and our own lives to see how much we are impressed by money and wealth, by the rich and famous, because we all face the same eternity. In Psalm 49, verse 16 and following, it says, be not afraid, and the NIV gets it a little better, it's do not be overawed. So don't be impressed, is the point. Don't be impressed when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is just like the beasts that perish. But before we condemn the Pharisees, we're wise to ask this question. What thing or things are most valuable to me? Where, where is my treasure? What, what is most valuable when it comes to money and resources? What do you treasure is the question. As Christians, as disciples of Jesus, the life we live, we live by faith. Faith is being certain of what we do not see. So when we think about sending money on ahead and laying it up in eternity, we're walking by faith, not by sight. We're believing the words of Jesus to be true, and we're saying we believe that sending it on ahead into eternity will yield the harvest, will yield the rewards that Jesus promises. We do not live by what we see. We do not value most what we see because this will go away one day. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. It is spiritual, not physical, the things that we value. But nevertheless, wealth is a good gift if we steward that gift wisely. If we steward that gift wisely, the gift of wealth, we will do the following joyfully. We'll take care of our family because we're worse than unbelievers if we don't. We'll help others in need. So a lot of folks at Living Hope support Covenant Mercies, which is uh, supporting orphans in Africa. Uh, we encourage that sort of thing because it's folks in need. We we give to see the gospel and the kingdom of God spread. There are all manner of great things going on in Sovereign Grace churches abroad. We've established accounts folks can give to in Latin America and in Africa.
Africa and in Asia, where uh, largely through our music, uh, the gospel is spreading in wonderful ways and our influence uh, will make a huge difference. And we get to contribute to that by giving into Sovereign Grace churches. And we also are wise to know how to abound. So the tension here, right, the balance, the Bible says to us, uh, enjoy wine. And this is in Ecclesiastes. Enjoy wine and enjoy a meal. Like, so good food, good drink is wonderful. Know how to abound. Know how to enjoy that. Live life, though, aware that that's not the totality of life. We also invest and lay up in eternity. So you're going to have people, this is just the unhappy experience of life, who are going to be critical of you enjoying life some. Like you could do this or that like Judas, right? You, you could have given that to the poor. What are you doing? You're going to have people who are critical of you enjoying life, but you can't just enjoy here and now. You've got to give and invest in things that are in eternity. So it's both. We don't just narrowly go one way. This is, this is not legalism at all. This is not law. This is, hey, one day it's all going to go away. Do you want to send some ahead or not? That's all, that's all this is, as Jesus is, is talking to us. It's wise to send someone ahead. Everything we aim to accomplish in life comes under the lordship of Jesus. And one day we will see the fruit, the good, that is accomplished from our giving. I'm persuaded we're going to be blown away on that day by everything that we see as the fruit of the investments we made. Because so much of what we do now, we don't see the fruit. We don't get to know what the harvest is. So, one day, we will see that completely. I want you to know Jesus determines what things hold value in eternity. He determines what's valuable, and so that's where we need the Word of God. May we have strong desires and passions to live for the day when we're face-to-face -face with God. May we live life now aware that moment is coming. The Christian doesn't fear that day because we know the blood of Christ covers us. It's not what we've done or what we did that somehow saves us. That's not it at all. But there is a day where we give an account of our lives to God when we're face to face with him. So C.S. Lewis again in Weight of Glory says... If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased because we go for too much attraction now, too much gain now and we don't sufficiently go for what is ahead. Here's how life works. All week long, everywhere you go, you're bombarded with messages that tell you the here and now is the most important. What car you drive, what clothes you wear, uh, perfume, uh, what foods, I mean, you, you're bombarded again and again. You see billboards going down the road. You see commercials on TV. You see them on the internet. We are bombarded completely with the here and now. Do you know what we're not bombarded with? 
we're not bombarded with there's an eternity awaiting, there's a day coming where this ends and we give an account to God. We're not bombarded with that. That's not the squeaky wheel. But that day is coming. It's sure and certain. So let me close. Jesus is probing our hearts and like a good doctor evaluates our physical condition, Jesus is examining our spiritual condition. He's examining our hearts regarding our treasures. So, a couple of questions for you. Where are you laying up your treasure? Where are you laying up your treasure? You might not have an answer come to mind, but we're all laying up treasure somewhere. The second, how clear is your sight into the things that matter most? It'd be my desire that we all live aware of eternity, that on Tuesday or Wednesday, we're living life aware of eternity, not just trying to get through the hurried here and now, but looking ahead. And third, who do you live for? Who do you live for? The so-called health and wealth gospel is a lie. It's at best a half-truth because it is so completely oriented to this life. It's so completely about the here and now. We are wise when we live for that final day. So Randy Alcorn gives this wise perspective. He says that our money, our resources are like the Confederacy in the Civil War. So imagine 1864, you've got millions of dollars of Confederate dollars. And you want to hang on to it because it makes you wealthy in the South, let's say in Virginia, you're wealthy. But in 1865, the end is coming, the Civil War will be over, the South will lose, and Union dollars will be the currency, and all of those Confederate dollars are worthless. Maybe they're good for kindling and fire, right? But I mean, but, I mean in terms of purchase power, they have none. They become completely worthless. You can't, can't transfer them cash on the dollar. It's not like that. It's completely worthless. And Randy Alcorn is trying to say, look, look, our money now and our resources is like that. One day it goes away. We have the opportunity to send someone ahead. How are we going to live? What are we going to invest? I want to say again, no rules about this. It's simply how wise are you in thinking ahead and believing by faith the words of Jesus. This world is ending. Perhaps first your life will end, but you've been entrusted with riches. How will you invest your wealth? Will you send it on ahead? May we be found wise in God's view, and may our lives yield fruit in eternity for his glory. So send your treasure on ahead. Execute that layup for the glory of God and your eternal joy. You will have no regrets on that final day. Again, I believe we'll be amazed and astonished at what our giving and our investments accomplished on that day. How wonderful it will be to hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would help us to know how to abound, to enjoy life here, however much we have. And I pray that you would orient us toward eternity, that we would wisely invest in ministries, in people 
that make a difference on into eternity. Lead us by your spirit, we pray. Help us to know how to live this life wisely. And we thank you for your great and precious promises which guide us and steer us in this life. Lord, it's our desire to follow you wholeheartedly with a single eye and united heart. And it's our desire to bring you glory and honor. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.